I'm McKinney Smith. In 2009, while going through a divorce, I decided to jump straight into entrepreneurship. In 2012, I lost my sister and asked myself, what legacy do I want to leave behind? Since then, I've become a serial entrepreneur, helping other women publish their books, produce their podcasts, and reach their big goals to walk in their greatness. I realized the importance of sharing our stories of resilience and how it can be another's guide to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. We are blessed to be a blessing. So get ready to be blessed with an inspiring testimony. Hey, Legacy Leavers, thank you for joining us on the Walk in My Stilettos podcast, the top 1.5% most popular show in the world where we have conversations with extraordinary women. They're letting us step into their shoes. I help women to own their voice so they can create impact, prosperity, and legacy. I get inspired when I see another woman succeeding, but what interests me more is her backstory and her mindset on how she got there. So today's guest is about to bless us with her testimony, and since you're already here, you may as well subscribe. Today we have Nadine Liverpool. She is a former TV broadcaster turned marketing strategist. She spent 10 years working in sports media for some of the biggest networks in Canada. This former NCAA Division I soccer player has also been seen on MTV and NBA TV, as well as Flow Sports throughout the Caribbean. She now works in the creator economy and is helping grow community at Jabber, one of the fastest growing tech companies in Canada. Please welcome to the show, Nadine Liverpool. Thank you for joining us um, and agreeing to share your story with us today. Well, thanks for having me. And it's a pleasure to be able to share my story on your podcast. (laughs) I'm excited. I mean, we've been following each other for a while on social media. I believe we've seen each other out at like events and stuff, but I'm always excited when I get to learn deeper someone's story. It makes me feel more connected to that person and more inclined to support and uh, do my best to bring awareness to what you're doing and the difference that you're making in the world. So I'm just grateful that we're able to have this conversation and um, ready to jump right in. Yes, let's do it. Let's get deep and emotional and all that. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Okay, so I'm going to give a little quick backstory to the listeners Actually, before I do that, let's start with an icebreaker question, because I believe that kids have these vivid imaginations and, you know, when they are little, they have, they want to be all these things. They want to be astronauts and firefighters and all these things before society starts to limit their belief of who they can be. And then as adults, we end up in these careers or paths sometimes not necessarily what we even want to do, but because of something that happened to us or because of an expectation of someone else or society or maybe what our parents wanted us to do. So I would love to know, like, what did you want to be as a little girl? I think this is a great question because I actually thought about this the other day. And with all of that stuff you're saying, we're like your parents and like what they project onto you and try to force you to be, which is basically like an extension of themselves. But for me, when I was a little girl, I actually wanted to be a teacher. And because I'm really into books, and I think like looking back at me as a child, like reading and writing and learning was my escapism, like 
my, um, I would say my chaotic childhood in my environment. And that was the way that I kept myself safe. So I was like, oh, I want to be a teacher when I grow up. But it didn't necessarily go that way. I kind of followed the path that my mom and my dad wanted me to become, which was to be a soccer player and to work in television. And I already have both of those checked marked. But I think I'm now getting back into a place where I am wanting to reconnect with my inner child and like the things that I was passionate about and why I've gotten to like into coaching and stuff like in terms of like marketing and consulting. And I think that's me making that, I would say, pivot or like 180 back into like who I really am. I love it. I love it. Okay. So tell us the journey of how you got into being a marketing strategist? I would say in terms of me deciding like from a career perspective, I would say I always played sports um, my whole life. So I was a top athlete and played for the Canadian national team in, in uh, high school, went away to school on, on athletic scholarship. And when I returned back to, um, so when I graduated from university and I moved back to Toronto, I actually did a postgraduate program in sports, in sports media, because I wanted to become a sports broadcaster. But the thing was back then I was like, well, how do I get exposure? How do I get people, especially I'm not only a female, I am a black female living in a predominantly white country that is Canada. How do I get these people to see that hey, I got personality. I know sports. Like, you guys should hire me. And at the time, um, one of my friends was like, hey, you should start a YouTube channel. And I was like, oh, really? I should start a YouTube channel? Like, do what? And they're like, you know, just pop out a camera and start talking about sports. Start talking about things you like. So that's exactly what I did. I started a YouTube channel. And back then, I didn't know anything about, like, talking on camera, recording with a, with with video equipment, editing, any of that stuff, or even knowing how to promote myself on social media. Like, how do I build a community? How do I, you know, start an email list? Like, how do I do that? I didn't know any of those things. So I think my like journey to becoming a marketing strategist actually started with me in my pursuit of becoming a sports broadcaster in sports media. So everything that I learned in terms of like, you know, how to use YouTube and how to, you know, use Twitter and LinkedIn and all these social platforms, a lot of it was self-taught. And over time, I was like, okay, I have to create a website. I need to learn WordPress. I need to learn this tool and that tool. And then eventually, I ended up kind of like taking actual classes so I can actually get a job in the marketing industry. So I actually went back to school at University of Toronto and took like a digital marketing uh, course. I even did like HubSpot courses for like SEO, um, like Google, like like I would say like PPC and like Facebook ads and like all the digital marketing stuff. And that kind of primed me for making the pivot into marketing once I decided I didn't want to work in sports media anymore. So when I did make that transition, it was really, I would say, I wouldn't say it's easy, but I kind of, at the same time, working in sports media, I was always doing things in marketing on my own as well. Mm. Wow. So I I love hearing the pivot and how you got into your business industry. And for those listeners that are listening, actually, I'm, I might have a put a trigger warning here just in case, because um, we don't know where this conversation is going to go. <laughs> but you and I are going to discuss more things about our personal and relationship um, experiences. So I had posted about well, by the time this airs, it'll 
you know, be a few weeks, but I had posted a status, one sentence that said, I dated the Toronto Tinder swindler. And by the time this airs, there will be a full episode with full details of my experience. So they can go back and listen to that episode if they want to get into what this is about in full detail. But you uh, commented on the post that I posted after that and said that you dated someone who is a combination of both the Tinder swindler and inventing Anna. Yes. (laughs) Yes, I did. (laughs) Yes, I did. Yes. So for for those who are listening, quick, quick backstory. The Tinder Swindler is basically, it it was, it's a documentary of real life experience. He used Tinder to meet women and basically financially abuse them. He would fake these emotional connections in order to take advantage of them. And he would take advantage of them through large sums of money, getting them to take out loans and credit cards and so on and so forth. And I have yet to watch Inventing Anna, but I believe I know like she basically is a fraud. Yeah, she basically lied about being like a German heiress. So like changed her name and basically created a whole new identity in order to scam people. Right. So you and I have both dated different versions of these people. (laughs) And the reason I'm laughing about it, and I feel that I can at this point, because I feel that I've healed from the experience to a point where I can speak about it without feeling hurt or overly emotional. And I think that's a, a good point that we can get into after about the healing process. But I know from my DMs after that one post, there are so many women that have had very similar experiences and feel embarrassed or ashamed to speak about it because either they feel they're the only ones that have gone through it or they feel like, oh my God, how could I have believed this person or any of those things? And I've read a lot of articles where clinical psychologists and stuff were saying like, you can't continue to further victim shame the victim. Like we need to focus on the abuser and what they did and not add on more trauma to the person that experienced it. So I want you to share as much of your experience as you're comfortable sharing. Yeah, I would say in my experience, and just to give you back starting to kind of like me as being a female and my dating past, like I'm that person that just falls really quick, right? And I'm just genuinely a good hearted person. So I think when I'm in that beginning lovey-dovey technical terms, love bombing stage, I'm very like, oh my gosh, they're just like me. Not realizing like that niceness that I know I am like mm-hmm. 100%. This person's just kind of, you know, putting on a show, right? They're mirroring what you want. Right, exactly. So in my situation, like with like my past relationship, I was basically talking kind of like I would say rekindled the friendship with someone who I had known for a very long time someone who I'd known from since I was like 12 years old. And we hadn't talked for a while, but we started talking on like BBM. For those of you who remember like Blackberry Messenger, talking back and forth. And it kind of grew into us becoming close friends. And then it grew into something more romantic. And at the time when we were talking back and forth, whether it was on BBM or with video chat on WhatsApp, He was actually living in Trinidad and I was living in Toronto, Canada. So in a way, it was pretty much a long distance, right? 
And at the time I was going through a lot in terms of like my career and I just was not, I just felt like I needed a change. So he was like, well, why don't you come move down to Trinidad? Because again, like I am also of Trinidad descent. So even though I was born in Toronto, Canada, both my parents are from Trinidad. So I was like, okay, you know what? Like, you know, at like at the time I had like just quit my job. I was going to do something different. And I that's when I was trying to pivot into into marketing. And I was like, okay, you know what? It was in a period where I'm like, I can just move and I can figure this out. And because I was like, at the time we were dating, I was like, okay, I'm going to make this move. So I actually moved to Trinidad. And I remember when I moved down there, that was the moment that I could tell like, he was he was acting a bit different, maybe in the sense that he had like, you know, he had caught the prey. So it was like, what's the, like, what's the point of like keeping the mask on, right? Mm-hmm. But I just decided, oh, like, no, maybe he's just in a bad mood or, you know, maybe it's something that I said, like always thinking it's my fault. Well, maybe like, maybe he's just an asshole, right? But yeah. I wasn't really seeing those, those red flags back then, right? Because I was still in this kind of like gaga, love bombing kind of phase. And I would say like over that period of like dating him, I had learned that, as I said, kind of to go back like he's actually from Toronto but is all but was actually born in Trinidad but he had moved to Canada so in terms of like relating this to kind of like inventing Anna like he had actually moved to Trinidad and had changed his name so a lot of people down there don't know what his real name is and like to this day he's still you know living this double or lie I would say or double life of pretending that he's X when he's actually Y, right? So I had learned that he had like done a lot of, I would say, fraudulent things up here in Canada, and he had gotten charged for it. And he was put on probation for a few years. And he kind of felt that he didn't want to do probation. So he fled and he moved to Trinidad. So a lot of people who are down there don't even know that backstory from him right they just think oh yeah he just moved down here like Mm -hmm. no there's a lot more to his story than just that but when I like learned all these things and I was down there it was one of those things where like I felt I was like so I was so deep into it in the sense that like I had moved I am down there like and I'm like learning all these things as we go, I kind of said, well, okay, I'm just gonna accept these things and and stay with him. So while I was in Trinidad also, he also did help me get my work permit so I could work in Trinidad. And that's when I would say most of the abuse really started because I had actually gotten a really good job in Trinidad working as a sportscaster for Flow Sports. And the reason I was able to do that is because he was able to sponsor me and, and actually get a work permit for me. But with that, over time came, I do X for you. Well, I want Y. And I kind of felt, well, of course I would do this for him because he did this for me. And one of the things that he wanted that I agreed to was he wanted to quit his job to start his own business. So I was like, okay, trying to figure out what his plans were. And he didn't really have much of a plan. But because I'm like, well, he helped me, I want to help you. I told him to quit his job. 
And basically he started his own business and he actually needed rent for the storefront and I paid for the rent for the storefront. And at the same time, I was paying for the rent for our place and I was paying for our groceries and everything. And I had to pay for inventory and I wasn't just doing that. I was also the person building his website, teaching him about marketing. I was the brand strategist, the business, everything, right? I'm nodding because I'm like, yep, been there. (laughs) Right? And at first, you're kind of like, okay, I'm going to do this because, you know, I love this person. And I really and truly, I was like, I see the potential in him. And that was my biggest, I would say, like mistake that I made in this terms of like, I was, I fell for his potential. And I think it had a lot to do with the fact I knew what I was capable of. And I knew the type of guy that I, in my mind, knew I wanted to be with. And I knew that he wasn't there. But because I believed in myself so much, like I knew if I poured into him and do what I needed to do for him, he would get to where I needed him to be for me, right? So as much as I could say to myself, oh, I did all of this stuff for him. Yes. But I think some of a part of it was I was doing it for myself too, right? Because if I had done nothing and invested anything into him, what would he have been doing with his life? Would I have been okay being with somebody that? No. So of course, for in my mind, I'm going to invest my time, my money and my resources into this guy that technically like I, I moved to another country for like this, this has to work out. I'm not going to move all the way to Trinidad and it not work out. Right. So um, I would say like over time in terms of like, you know, I would say the first few months of it was fine because like he was, you know, building his business, he was having customers coming in and everything was okay. But then after a few months, I just noticed, okay, the store is open five days a week. Why are you only going in two days a week this week? You know, things, oh, if it was on a, on a weekend and I'm like, hey, do you want to work on some stuff? Oh, no, like you just want to watch TV and do nothing. Mm-hmm. But we still have to pay the rent every single month. Who's paying for that? Right. Of course, I'm paying for that, right? And then over time, you kind of just realize like this person, like, never ever really had what it took to become the person that in your mind thought they could be because they never were that person. Right. right? And you start to become resentful. And I think in my situation, he started becoming resentful of me because I was succeeding within my career. Right. I was a sportscaster for flow sports Um, to give you some context on flow sports. Like we, the network and the show I worked for, we were the first like HD sports network in Trinidad. We were broadcast in over 25 countries. So I had fans all over the Caribbean. You know, I, in some ways I was like a mini celebrity. I don't like using that word, but in that sense, like, you know, a lot of people knew who I was. It was getting a lot of traction and I was getting a lot of opportunities and the rate that I was progressing in Trinidad compared to him was a lot faster. But when I look back, of course it would, right? Like I put in, you put in the work. <laughs> I've been an athlete since I was eight years old. I, you know, as I talk about being the national team scholarship, all, all of those things, like why wouldn't I be progressing at that rate? But a lot of times when it comes to, I would say, you know, the constructs of like patriarchy 
and misogyny in the sense that like he's a man and you know I'm a woman that right there in his mind probably thinks no if I'm a man and you're a woman I should be doing better than you right and what ended up happening was even though I was you know progressing in my career and his business wasn't growing the way that it was growing he also was expecting me to be his mom and his grandma within the house right and he weaponized kind of, I would say, you know, the ideals of being a woman. And he would say things to me like, oh, it doesn't matter that you're paying for my business and you're paying, you're paying all the bills. Like you still need to, you know, maintain the house. So a phrase he actually said to me, which was always stuck with me. He said to me that his grandma told him, if you don't take care of home, a man will roam. And me, I joked back and I said, well, if you don't take care of your wife, she's going to find a new life. (laughs) (laughs) You know? And I pushed back a bit. But the thing is, is that that was in his mind as to like what your duty is as a woman in this home. And it wasn't until later when things got worse in terms of him being, becoming more emotionally abusive and even me leaving the relationship where I learned that the reason why he thought that me financially providing wasn't enough is because growing up in Toronto, his mother financially provided for him. So he's very spoiled, Mm -hmm. right? So he got those financial spoils as a child, but didn't have an emotional connection with his mother. So now that I'm doing the same thing in that regard, he looks at it as like, well, that's not enough, right? And then on the flip side of it, while he being financially spoiled and having a mom who let him do whatever he wanted, the mom learned that from her mother. So his grandmother. So when I lived in Trinidad and was around his grandmother, I noticed that the grandmother would do everything for him. Mm -hmm. The grandmother would clean his clothes, cook for him. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. But when you're doing it 100% and letting him do what he wants and do as he enable them. Right. She was an she was an enabler. Yeah. And so now that we're together, he's looking at me like, well, this is what I'm used to. Right. I'm used to women taking care of me. I'm used to being able to do whatever I want. I'm used to being able to be able to access your money, to being able to access your mind, being able to access your body, everything like that's his normal. So that's where the friction continued with him. And then it just started becoming, I would say, emotionally abusive, where every time and anything I did, he would try to bring me down. Yeah. It could one day it's he finds a dish that wasn't cleaned well enough. Okay, I wash the dishes better. The next day, it's because I didn't, you know, maybe sweep the floor. The next day, there's always something else that they find to kind of pick on you to like, basically like break you down and make you feel that you're the problem and your, your role in life is to actually like cater to them. And I would say like when it started deteriorating even more, it was, I remember there was a time where I realized like I couldn't financially keep up with everything. Right. Again, I was saying I was paying for all the rent and bills in the house. I was paying for his stores, rents, and all of that stuff. I just financially couldn't take care of it. And I said to him, I was like, hey, you know, I really think you may need to go get a part-time job. 
right? To help out. Like maybe it's something you could do on the weekends. Like maybe you could go like be a bartender or something, but like, I need the help. Yeah. His reaction was he flipped out and he like went crazy. And I had never seen something like that before where he was like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Like, you know what? I want you to get the hell out of the house. I don't want you to be here. You're not for me. I knew you were never for me. Just because I like basically, I realized for the first time in our relationship, actually like laid down a boundary. And I said, no, mm-hmm. I can't do this. I need help. Mm-hmm. And looking back, like the fact that he reacted like that, I wonder if any woman in his life has laid down any sort of boundary with him, you know, mm-hmm. for him to react like such a, like, like such a toddler as he was. Right. But end of the day, I now learned like, he is emotionally a toddler and yeah. he does have arrested development in terms of his emotional development. But at that moment he was ready. I thought he was going to hit me or do something violent to me just because I told him no. And at that moment, like I knew I had to like get out of the relationship. And I think when you've given so much to somebody and they can sense that you are pulling away I feel like energetically it gets very dangerous in that type of relationship because they, the abuser can tell that a shift is happening. And for, I, and I found that from that moment on, like things just continued to get worse and to get worse and to get worse. And it got so bad that one night he tried to kill me. Wow. Now. Yeah. So what ends up happening, I don't want to get too graphic with it, but essentially what he did was he raped me and he left me on the bed. Basically, I think like he thought that he had killed me because something for, for me and how I got through it was when I what I could tell what was happening. And it's something where when a man is in that sort of state, something comes over them. And I don't know how to explain it, but it's like, I don't know if it's like a demon or devil that comes over them, but it's something where you can just tell that you're in danger. And even like the type of sounds that was coming out of him, it was so demonic that my initial like response was to just freeze. And I like totally dissociated from my mind, my body and everything And I've learned after like reading up on stuff that basically your body does that when it's preparing for an attack. Mm -hmm. And in some ways I feel like that, like me doing that, like saved my life. And I basically dissociated and just let him do what he had to do. And I remember I just laid there on the bed and I didn't scream. I didn't even, I didn't move. And he just walked out of the room. And I remember I just laid there for hours, Makini. Like, I did not move. I was in shock. After that happened, he actually got my phone. And because my phone at the time, you needed to put your thumb mm-hmm. on it to open it. While I was, like, passed out. I wasn't passed out. I was just, like, fading away. Because that's the only way my mind knew to, like, pretend I was like dead yeah it's a trauma response yeah he took my thumb and opened my phone like like with my thumb so the fact that he did that I know that he thought 
that I was gone. Mm. He, did, he never checked me once. He never, after he did whatever he, to me, he never pushed me. He never checked anything. He just left me there. And what I had learned after is that the next morning, so and I'm kind of going all over the place because it's been a while. But basically, in the morning, I decided to wake up. And when I had woken up from what had happened, he like flipped out. And he was acting up in terms of like, he didn't, he couldn't understand like why I had woken up. And knowing that I like got through that moment, like, I just started like having anxiety and a panic attack. And it was just like a lot. I don't know how to explain it. But when you go through something like that, it's just so traumatic. Because you realize that this person literally like you're been sleeping with the devil like the whole time, right? And when that happened, I actually like had a nervous breakdown. I was so disoriented because I didn't understand how I survived. I didn't understand how this guy was still here. And he was about to like attack me again, knowing that I had survived what he did to me. And what he had, what he did was he actually called like my aunt and uncle to tell them that I was acting out when in reality, like I had just been raped and I didn't know how to deal with this trauma mm-hmm. and it ended up taking me to the hospital in Trinidad. And I remember when the nurses were asking me what happened, Wait, he was right there. No. Yeah. My family did. Right. Cause I didn't know how to, I was so afraid as to like, well, if I tell my, my family what happened, like, what's he going to do? So when we were in the hospital, he was like right beside me the whole time. So I couldn't, I didn't feel comfortable telling the nurse what he had done because if I say what happened, he may attack me. He may attack the nurse. You you don't know what's going to happen. And the reason why I was so worried about what he would do is because I've had an abusive relationship before in the past. And this isn't the first time I had gone through this. I'd actually gone through this from when I was 18 years old before I had like gone away to school in the States where I had an, I was in an abusive relationship where I ended up running into an LCBO looking for help because I was so afraid for my life. And wow. my boyfriend at the time when I was 18 ran into the LCBO with like following me and ran into the office where I was and not only started beating me up, but started beating up the manager as wow. well. Yeah. And he ended up getting charged and I ended up getting a restraining order. So when all this stuff was happening again, it was kind of like deja vu. Mm-hmm. I was like, gosh, I clearly have not healed from what happened to me when I was younger. If I'm, you know, in the same situation again. And essentially after everything had happened, I was able to leave the relationship. I had to tell my, after I was more, I would say oriented and, and could really articulate my thoughts, told my family. And I ended up leaving. But upon leaving, the problem, one of the biggest things I would advise women is like, don't have a joint account with somebody. Mm -hmm. So we had a joint account. I tried to take out some money before I actually left him. But when I did leave, the first thing that he did was take money out of the account. And he took all the money that we had left. Wow. He didn't think about, oh, I'm sad that she is leaving. All he thought about was, I need to protect myself. So he took all the money that we had. Then the next thing that he did, which I was prepared for, was he canceled my work permit. 
And he basically tried to like bribe in the immigration down in Trinidad to try to arrest me. And luckily, when I talked to immigration, every, they were like, okay, we could clearly see what this guy's trying to do. And they didn't do anything. But essentially, it was like he was kept harassing me. He literally kept going back to immigration to try to get them to hurt me. And I think his obsession with immigration and trying to like, I don't know, like get me evicted, I mean, not evicted, get me deported or or something like that. I think it had to do a lot with the fact of what his situation was with him leaving Canada to come to Trinidad. And then the fact that like he made that decision to kind of leave I, or I honestly make this point, I don't even know if that's 100% true. That's what he's told me. Mm-hmm. I've heard other stories, people saying that he could have gotten deported from the Canadian um, because of the fact he is a born Trinidadian. So there's two sides to it. And I think he wanted to hurt me the way I guess maybe he felt hurt or by the fact that he made this decision to move to Trinidad, right? Mm-hmm. So basically, I had to stop working at Flow Sports because of uh, because of what happened. And even though my work at the time was going to sponsor me so I can continue working at Flow, I was like, okay, I'm going to come back to Toronto and, you know, wait it out while my papers are in order. But after everything I had been through, like not a lot of people know the extent of what happened. Some people just think, oh, he just canceled her work permit and that's why she left. I'm like, no, there's a lot more to it than that. But within like, I would say the three months I was back in Toronto, I was like, Nadine, like, is it really worth it to go back to Trinidad, like just for this job? And one of the things that I think is the most dangerous part about being in Trinidad for me is the fact like, like misogyny is such a big, I would say, practice thing in Trinidad, in the sense of the fact that like, a lot of women in the Caribbean are being abused, you know, on a daily basis. And a lot of these abusers are in high ranking positions, whether they're police officers, or work in the government and stuff like that. So the fact that I would say, even though I got out of my situation, okay, that my ex was able to manipulate a lot of people down there so easily, is what was frightening to me was the fact that yes, he, you know, technically he's a born Trinidadian, but because he has his Canadian accent, people are so quick to believe, okay, well, he's a foreigner. He must be somebody important, right? Mm. Kind of just like with inventing Anna. I know you haven't seen it, but she has this German accent. She's pretending to be a German heiress. She must be someone important. And it's the same thing that he's doing down there, like pretending that He's this, this, and that, and being able to kind of swindle people. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, I was that person that was kind of like, I fed into the lie and I fed into this fantasy of like wanting to make it work that I, in some cases, look at it like I enabled him to kind of think that he could, you know, I would say, take advantage of people, right? Because if I'm there with him, if I'm willing to be, you know, his partner in this, mm-hmm. then I'm a willing participant, right? And me leaving is basically saying like, I no longer want to be a part 
of whatever you're, you're trying to do, you know, and he just couldn't, he just couldn't handle it. But in terms of like the bunny part, um, one of the things that I learned when I moved back to Toronto was like, I spoke to some of his family members. I even, you know, spoke to some of his child's mothers and what was crazy is that even some of his aunts even messaged me and personally, like on Facebook and was like, I'm so glad you left. He's been very dangerous from since he was a child. You know, you have such a bright head on your shoulders. Like, don't worry about this. Like, this is his own family, right? And mm-hmm. um, when it came to money, one of his family members told me that he's been stealing money from since he was a kid from like in high school and how there were, I don't want to get too specific without calling this particular person out, but essentially he at one point had taken his, his, one of his family members ID and taken his ID to a bank and said like, Hey, look, we have the same last name. So-and-so said, I can come to the bank and get money for them. And because he had the same last name as the person, the bank, you know, gave him the money and he like here in took Canada? Money. Yeah, here in Canada. And wow. he took thousands of dollars from was able to access thousands of dollars with a person account. And he did this when he was like 16 years old. And it's so it's so weird, McKinney, too, that like when it's always when you leave somebody or you leave a relationship where people are willing to come out the woodwork <sighs> and talk Listen. to you about I'm upset, <laughs> I'm upset right now. Okay. Because ever since I posted that status on Facebook, the amount of DMS that I have gotten from one family members of this person saying, this is their track record. They have mm-hmm. a habit of using women as bank machines, family members saying they are trash, you know, all this other stuff from people that I have grown up with that either knew him or knew of him and knew of multiple, not just one, but multiple other women that he has financially taken advantage of and then ghosted. And they said nothing until after the fact. Yeah, no, it's, it's always like that. And I find that like, I don't know, sometimes I find even with people who um, told me that like where I looked at them, like they were, I would say a friend somewhat. I'm just like, are you really my friend if you didn't tell me or warn me about anything, you know, before I even like moved to Trinidad, like you didn't feel the need to say anything. And I think for me, the reason why I was willing to like, forego the red flags that I did see in him before I moved to Trinidad is because I always give people the benefit of the doubt in the sense like we all have a past, right? Like I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect, you know, and I'm willing to kind of say like, okay, based on the time that we've talked together, yes, I may know some things from your past, but like, if you didn't have any story from your past, then I would be, that's a red flag too, you know? So I just think sometimes like people, I think a lot of times people are like, well, that's their decision, but you never know, like you could save someone's life by and save so much heartache and, you know, lost time by letting this person know what you know, like even if they're, you know, not your friend, or you see them maybe post up there on Facebook or something, right? Like, I would be so appreciative <laughs> if someone were to tell me something that what that could have saved me from all that heartache. Exactly. And this is why I wanted to have this conversation, because I have asked the people that know multiple women that the person that I had this interaction with have dated to see if they'd be interested in coming on and sharing their side of the story. Because I feel like 
everyone feels so ashamed about what happened to them and nobody wants to talk about it. So they, the abuser gets to continue this pattern, you know, us not putting certain things out there where whatever narrative the abuser is giving people because they're master manipulators, they're liars, they're excellent at triangulation where they will tell you one thing so that you never want to go to ask another person or that, you know, they have an interaction with something and they'll tell that person something about you. So you two will never speak to get the pieces of the puzzle to connect the actual truth. So us having this open conversation for me is about awareness for another woman who stumbles across this information, or maybe someone even within our network, because both of us are considered like local public figures. So if someone hears our story, maybe they see this person dating someone that they know, and they could say, hey, this person's ex, this is the experience that they had with them, just be careful. Like, if I could save someone's life just through sharing my story, I am going to do so. And I think sometimes people feel and I don't know if it's ego, if it's hurt, I don't know what it is, but it's almost like a, they're so focused on themselves that they're not willing to save, you know, many other people. And I'm not saying that you need to drown in order to save anyone else, but if you can help prevent someone from experiencing PTSD, complex PTSD, you know, all kinds of additional layers of trauma. Like some of the stories that I've gotten in my DM about women that this person has dated, he left them suicidal and in financial ruin. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, like the first three months at, when I first realized what was going on and we split, I was in the same position. So there, you could save somebody's life. You know what I mean? Like listening to your story, I kept nodding my head because it was very similar to my story. And I was speaking with another public figure yesterday and she was sharing her story and she's openly talked about dating the Nigerian version of the Tinder swindler. And he almost got her to move away. And like, there's so many parts of our stories that are very similar that if we had either heard or had some form of awareness, we may have been able to prevent certain things from happening. And for, for anyone who is listening, like I feel sometimes people, if they don't know certain details or they're uneducated on certain things, their perspective or their narrative that they build in their head based on the information can go left. But anyone who wants to go and do any research, whether on narcissistic abuse in relationships, any form of domestic abuse, you know, financial abuse, psychological abuse, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, there's all different levels of abuse. I find if it's not physical, it's almost like, especially in the Caribbean community. And even though in the Caribbean community, there are many things that are considered normal, but it's very traumatizing. Some cultures, physical abuse may be normal, but it's not okay. But if you were to say to someone, well, I was abused, they say, well, if they didn't hit you, if you don't have a black eye, you don't have a, bu a, br a bruise, that wasn't abuse. No, that's not true. Financial abuse can take many different forms. And sometimes it can be more subtle than physical, verbal, or emotional abuse, but it is abuse. I was um, looking up some of the different ways that people can be financially abused. And it's like, I've had different types of relationships where I've experienced financial abuse myself. And there could be the type where they make all the money and they don't want you to work because they want to be able to control you and, you know, see what you're spending and do all those things. And then in our case, it's like they refused to work and forced you to take care of all the financial obligations in the relationship. That is a form of abuse. 
I think with him, like, it did work, right? I, it was the fact of the matter. It was like feeding me this fairy tale that he was going to become something that we both knew he was not capable of, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, even, and even if he was struggling, it was like, well, it's your responsibility to fix my problems. The fact that I'm not working as hard as I should be to achieve this stuff. Right. Yeah. Where again, well, that's what he's used to. He's used to no matter what problems that he's in, there's always a female that he can run to, to bail him out. Yeah. Whether it's a mom whether it's a female cousin, whether it's a grandma, whether it's an aunt, he knows that he can run to, let's be honest, weak woman in order to fall for his stops and for his sob story to do whatever he wants. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like when you were telling your story, I was like, Oh my gosh, like I can relate. I can relate. I can relate. I can relate. And you, you mentioned a point where you know, you were rising different to, to different levels of success and you were building much quicker than he was. And he may have felt threatened by that success. And I'm, I don't know if your experience was the same as mine, but I had that same experience where not only am I trying to build this person and help them start fresh every minute with financing, you know, what they're building, but they felt threatened by the gap in success per se. So I know initially when we broke this person was telling people that you know they got tired of standing in my shadow or playing the supporting role that they needed to focus on themselves but then now hearing from the family of the present woman that he lives with his excuse was that i wanted him to be home i needed him to be home and i i said that you know i couldn't stand to be away from him i needed him to like not work and i'm like have you even googled me do i look like the type like <laughs> that doesn't like measure up the math is not mathing so when it comes to like lies and stuff that are told did you find when you came back and you learned the truth and you got the other pieces of the puzzle that the triangulation and the stories that were being told like this person was just trying to make themselves look better and destroy your character yeah because I think when you're dealing with any sort of narcissist there's going to be the smear campaign like after the follow, like after the breakup, because they need to repair their fault self and their fault image. So I think the difference between me and him was he ran off trying to like do all this stuff professionally to prove that like he was the sane one where like I did the opposite. I was like, I don't want to date anyone. I need to go to therapy. I need to like really Deep, dig deeper into this into like my childhood how I was raised how I was even groomed into abuse and stuff like that but in terms of like what you're saying in terms of like him actually like running a smear campaign he lied and told people oh she was using me so she could work at flow or so 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 he was basically saying that I was only with him for my job mm-hmm. which wasn't the case because we were together before I had <laughs> this job right. You know what I mean? And if I and if I cared so much about my job, which he claims that I that I did, wouldn't I have moved back to Trinidad to continue working at Full Sports if it was that important to me? You know what I mean? So they're always going to find stories and 
things to say to make it seem like you're the unstable one, right? And what I've learned is that anyone who's willing to believe their story is somebody that you do not want in your life at all. Right. And for me, living down there, it's a lot of people were believing his story. Even some of my own family members were falling for his lies. I even had a family member who sent my mom an email of a Facebook post my ex posted about all the things he's doing in his business. And this was an aunt who knew that he had raped me and tried to kill me, right? But for some reason, you saw a Facebook post, what does that mean? Do you Mm. now think he's a good person? Like, do you know what I mean? People are very, very impressionable. And I think what the situation that I went through, it really exposed, I would say, family members in my life who I said, they're no good for me. And it doesn't matter if you're my aunt, my uncle, my cousin, if you are willing to believe his side, and you don't want and you are willing to kind of smear my name, then there's there's no there's no need for us to even communicate. So I went as far as blocking them, their phone numbers. I blocked my family members, certain family members on all, on Facebook, on on Instagram, on social media. I even put filters in my Gmail to say if this person emails or these keywords come in, like delete the message right away. Like when Mm -hmm. I say I went no contact, it was beyond no contact with my ex. It was no contact with anyone who was toxic in my life, ex, family, or friends. I can totally resonate with that. First of all, I should have said this already. Like, I'm sorry you even had to go through that experience. I can't even, no matter how our stories may be similar, like I can't even imagine what you uh, went through and, and what you had to work through and heal from. So I'm sorry you had to experience that. On the other side where, you know, you talked about in order to, to go no contact and to heal and the lengths that you had to go to remove toxic people in general from your life. I commend you for that because I know how difficult that can be because I had to do the same thing. And during my healing process, I realized that I had childhood wounds that I didn't know ex- like were there until I started doing the work on myself. Realizing, like you said, where you're groomed from a child to not honor your feelings and speak up and certain things. So in learning to do so, I had to as well, block family members and remove people from social media and create boundaries to protect my sanity and to learn healthy boundaries to honor myself and practice self-love, but also so that I don't continue to make those mistakes because you and I have both had more than one toxic relationship. And I know when you, um, when you filled out the the questionnaire for the, the podcast, you know, you've always been quote unquote successful, right? And it's like, we're doing so well in one area of our life, but then we have this track record when it comes to toxic relationships. But I think that these abusers target women like that because they're like, oh, well, the one thing that they're actually missing. So let me pretend to be who I think that they want me to be until they can no longer maintain that role. And then the mask comes off and then you see their their true selves, right? I actually saw a video that talked about like narciss- narcissistic abuse and it gave me a lot of context into like those childhood wounds and like where they really reside. And it really comes down to your mom 
or your dad. And I think anyone who has been, not in all cases, but I think in many cases, anyone who has been abused by a narcissist has had a parent who was a narcissist in their life, maybe both. In my case, I would say be my mom was like the first, I would say, abuser, narcissist in my life. And a video that I watched said, when you as a codependent or slash empath, as some people say, but I would say codependent dates a narcissist. It's like one person saying, the narcissist is saying, I'll be your mother if you'll be my mother. And I'll say that again, if you'll be my mother, I'll be your mother. And what that means is the narcissist offers you a type of maternal love in the beginning in a love bonding stage that you've never felt before because you probably have never had the emotional connection with your mom or your dad or maybe both. And you don't realize that there's a hole there, but there is, and this narcissist fills it. But the narcissist also says, like, not explicitly, but, you know, says, I'll be your mother, but you also have to be my mother. And at the beginning, they're not, you're not really their mother. A lot of times it's them pouring a lot into you. But over time, when their mass starts to, I would say, drop, they're now expecting you to be their mother. And they're expecting you to show that maternal love that they probably, or I would say parental love that they never got, right? Because they probably maybe were raised with a narcissistic mom. Maybe they weren't raised without a father. Maybe it was both within my situation. But eventually, they stop being your mother, but they still expect you to be their mother. And that's where the abuse starts happening. And, you know, they'll be financially abusive, emotionally abusive, psychologically abusive, even physically abusive, because you're still holding on to that love bombing stage where they gave you that maternal love that you've never felt before, not right. realizing it was all a performance yes. from the very beginning. Right? Yes, absolutely. There's so many things after hearing your story that I think people need to hear, especially about the, the healing process. So maybe if you're open to it, what we'll do is when this episode comes out, we'll do like a Instagram live just to talk about the, the healing part of it and understanding how us as empaths attract these narcissists. Because I, I agree with you, all of the work that I've done during my healing, learning from even you know psychologist peers and everything that I've been reading, about it stemming from a narc parent. And when you're raised by a narc parent, they don't provide the emotional, um, your, they don't provide for your emotional needs, not your wants, your emotional needs. So you're taught that your needs and your feelings don't matter. You're silenced, you're, all of those things that a child should have from a parent, we didn't receive that. So that these narcs now come in pretending to be that person that's going to give us that. And they promise the world and the whole future faking and love bombing and all those things until they realize either that you're human, <laughs> that you're not perfect, or that they find someone else to feed their narcissistic need. Then they discard you and have no use for you because they've moved on to their you know next victim. But I definitely want listeners to, you know, go and do their own research. And if you feel that you have a friend or loved one that has experienced financial abuse, you know, narcissistic abuse, um, any form of abuse, 
share this episode with them. I feel like the awareness of these conversations needs to happen, even as a conversation starter, because not every woman is brave enough to even share the details of their story for another woman to say, oh my gosh, that happened to me too. So I just want to thank you, Nadine, for being so transparent, for being so open. You have no idea how many lives you're going to touch just by sharing what you shared. And it will continue to snowball and touch others as people do their research into these things um, so that they can help themselves and their loved ones. So I just want to thank you for taking the time to join us. I truly, truly appreciate you. Yeah, no problem. And I'm more than happy to chat about the next phase about the healing process, because, you know, as much as yes, we can, you know, talk about the abusers and there's we're never going to it's not about saying, okay, we're going to dissolve them from what they did. But at some point too, as codependents, we need to take accountability for our part in it, right? Not Mm -hmm. our part in the abuse, but our part as to like, our decision making as to why we chose these sort of partners in our lives and looking deeper into like, well, maybe it's because it was comfortable for us. And why was it comfortable? How were we raised in terms of our environment and our parents and how we were essentially groomed for abuse? And once we come to that awareness saying, okay, I understand how I got here, but now how do I reprogram and recondition myself so I don't end up in the same situation again? Yes, absolutely. And that's the part that I wanted to get into. And I realized time is like (laughs) disappeared and ran away from us. But that is a really, really important part of the, the healing process. Because if we don't dig to the foundation and understand the why, then we continue to make the same mistakes over and over again. So if we want to stop the, um, the cycle, um, you know, the generational trauma and all those things, then we need to do the work. And the work isn't fun. Like it hurts. You know, it took, it took me a couple of years to go through it and it's ugly, <laughs> but it, it's work that needs to be done so that we don't pass that on to the next generation. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you so, so much, Nadine. And to all of you legacy leavers out there, until next time, subscribe on all platforms and don't forget to rate the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. We would love to hear what resonated with you from Nadine's story. Have you experienced this type of abuse? Do you know someone that has? We would love to hear your feedback. And I want to thank each and every one of you that continues to listen each and every week that helped the show to globally rank in the top 1.5% of most popular shows out of all podcasts. And that's almost 2.8 million. Feel free to screenshot this week's episode. You can tag Nadine at Nadine Liverpool. You can tag myself at The Real McKinney Smith and continue to walk in greatness in your stilettos in a manner worthy of your calling. 